Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project podcast. We appreciate you stopping by. The Death Dialogues Project is a grassroots effort at increasing and normalizing conversations surrounding death, dying, and the aftermath. This is an organic little grassroots project that we are allowing to follow the sun and grow the direction that it needs to go. Please come along for the ride by following us on Instagram and Facebook as The Death Dialogues Project and our blog, www.deathdialogues.net. And please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review so that our podcast can be shared more widely. Thanks so much for your support. We hope you enjoy your time with us. Today I'm joined by Don Picken, whose dear husband of 10 years tragically died after a sudden illness, leaving her to negotiate a new direction with two very small children. Come along to hear Dawn's story and where her unique journey took her. Dawn is a writer living in the Bay of Plenty in New Zealand. She's also a tutor and communication coach who's written a memoir called Love, Loss, and Facebook, My Year of Grief on the Run. And Dawn was a long time TV journalist in the United States before moving to New Zealand. You can find Dawn at dawnpicken.com. Hi, Dawn. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. So I was just wondering if you could give our listeners just a little background of your story with your dear husband and what has happened at that time and since. Well, in 2009, Sean and I were living in Spokane, Washington with our two kids. Fiona was five and Finley was three when Sean got really sick. And we thought it was part of the big swine flu epidemic that was happening at the time. So I kept him home for four days and fed him soup and made smoothies and lots of water. And he just wasn't getting any better. And then on the fourth day, finally decided that I needed to get him to a doctor. Uh, We had a lot of discussions about... um, not wanting to call an ambulance because that would be massively expensive and we had a high deductible on our health insurance. And once we got him to the doctor, he asked the doctor to please not order a lot of expensive tests because of the whole, again, health insurance and the cost issue. And so we were really mindful of that and just thinking, oh, it's it's swine flu, we'll get it taken care of and, and we'll get him home. Well, once we got to the doctor's office, the doctor had great trouble finding a pulse, which was my first clue that something was really, really wrong. And uh, Sean, I mean, I could barely get him out of the house. I had to slide him down the stairs. His legs were really weak. Um, And so the doctor, after examining him, said, I don't know what's wrong with him, but you need to get him to the emergency room right now. 
and he allowed us to drive. He allowed us to not call an ambulance um, because the, the hospital that we were going to was just a couple blocks away. But he said, don't delay. You need to get there right now. I'll tell them that you're coming. So we did, and we get to the ER, and Sean is looked at pretty quickly. And the first thing they tell us is that his kidneys have already failed. Mm -hmm. So here we thought that he had the flu, and he's in kidney failure. And so we're talking about, like overhauling his diet and how he's going to get into an exercise routine and all of these kind of surfacey things you talk about when you think somebody has a, an illness that can be cured or healed pretty quickly. And as time goes on, um, they move him to uh, a unit. They get him out of the emergency department and they, they move him upstairs and they start running all these tests on him and tell me he's not going anywhere. Like, you know, we're not just going to give him drugs and send him out. He, there's something really wrong going on. We're not sure what it is yet, but um, he's going to need to stay. So I go home to sort the kids and to pack a bag because I'm going to go to the hospital and just stay there for a while. So I pack my bag, I return to the hospital. By the time I get there, he's been moved into intensive care. And so now I'm panicked. Now I'm absolutely terrified. And what they tell me is they have found necrotizing fasciitis, which is known as the flesh-eating bacteria. So the bacteria don't actually eat the tissue, but the, the tissue does die. And if you don't get it, if you don't cut it out, then you die. So they were working to save his life. He was struggling to breathe. They had to intubate him. So that was um, when they came at me with the clipboard and had me sign. That was the first indication that this is now, as the spouse, this is my responsibility. I have responsibility for his medical care and the decisions that are made. And it's all really scary. You don't think about these things when you're a young-ish couple. I mean, I was 39 at the time. And Yes, Sean and I had talked about medical decision-making and things like that in a real theoretical way. Um, yeah. yeah, he had never he had never been sick like that. So um, he was intubated, and um, I spent a very scary night in the hospital. And in the course of checking him out, they found a, a mass on his pancreas that they said was incidental to everything else that was happening. They didn't know what it was. They didn't think at that point it was cancer, but it was large. It was the size of a grapefruit. And they said, when he recovers from necrotizing fasciitis, he will have to have surgery and we will have to remove this mass. So it was just one thing after another. He spent two and a half weeks in the ICU and I sat vigil at his bedside. I had just come out of... Um, a career, 15-year career as a TV news reporter. So that's what I did. I kind of played reporter. I used my notepad as a shield and took notes and kind of tried to pretend that this wasn't my story, but somebody else's, mm -hmm. because that was a way to cope, to think this is really not happening. I'm not in the ICU with my husband. I have not left my two small children at home or in the neighborhood with friends. Um, because I was going back and forth from the hospital to see the kids, from the hospital to see the kids. Uh, the hospital at the time really limited access to children because of the swine flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that was another complicating factor was that I just couldn't breeze in at any time with the kids. And, and I was determined when he was, when Sean was in ICU, I wrestled with whether or not to bring the children there. 
because it's a scary place. You know, the yeah. ICU is really scary. And he was hooked up to all of those tubes and he's intubated and he can't talk. And I'm thinking, I don't want to frighten these little kids. And so I talked to the doctor about it and he, he was of two minds. On the one hand, there was a real possibility Sean could die. And so you don't want to deprive your children as young as they were of the last chance to see their father. But on the other hand, I was really protective and I was really worried about what their reaction might be in seeing Sean like that. And, and if that were going to be the last time that they saw him, did I want to leave them with that memory? And I didn't. So ultimately, after consulting with some, uh, some of the people at the hospital, the child life specialist and so on, I just decided I did not want to bring them to the ICU. So I didn't. And fortunately, he did make it out of the ICU. So I was able to bring the kids around. And he, because of kidney failure, he was still going to dialysis. He was in dialysis, I think, at that point every day for several hours. And so the first time I took Fiona, who was five, in to see Sean, we had to trek down the corridor to the dialysis room, and that's where he was. And it was, it was too much for her. It was too much for her to see him in a bed, hooked up, um, and so she kind of hid behind me, didn't say a lot. The next time I brought her in, he was in a, a regular room, and she held his hand, and she she talked to him, and she told me afterwards, Mommy, Daddy wasn't scary this time. Aww. Yeah, yeah. They made lots of pictures to put on his wall. Um he was moved so many times. I think we counted seven moves between rooms and facilities. So once he got well enough to leave that hospital but not to come home, the, you know, insurance and all, all, all its wisdom decided we don't want to pay for any more hospital than we have to. We're sending him to an advanced care hospital, which is a nice name for a nursing home, mm-hmm. out of state, a half hour away. So we had to bring him there. And he stayed there for a couple weeks and got rehab. He was relearning how to walk. He was really weak. Um, And so when he finally was well enough to come out of there, he came back to Spokane and went to another rehab facility. Uh, This one, not not a nursing home. People of all ages, mostly older, but um, it was just a better place for us because it was closer to home and it it was solely focused on rehab and getting people home. So he relearned to walk. He was doing stairs. He was regaining strength. He got a a hall pass to come home for a few hours. So that was wonderful to finally get him home. He did that the night before he had surgery to remove the mass on his pancreas. And then he went in in late January to have the surgery. And the doctor came out afterwards and told me it went really well. We got the whole mass. Um, We're going to send it to pathology and and see how it comes out. And it turns out it was benign. They were right. It was benign. And Sean beforehand had asked, can't they wait for the surgery? Like, can't, can't they wait five years? Like, he had something in his intuition that told him, this is not a good thing. I don't want this surgery. We need to wait. And of course, at the time, what do you do? The doctors say, well, even though we think it's benign, it could turn cancerous, and we don't want this in your body, and we need to take it out. So we just went on the advice of what they told us, 
And after the surgery, Sean was in a lot of pain, and they had trouble managing that. And he bounced back and forth between a, a couple of different rooms. And then finally, when he was conscious, he was complaining about feeling like he had blood pooling in his stomach. Now, nobody had told him that. Wow. That was just him. That was just him saying, I feel like I've... When, he asked me, when are they going to pump the blood from my stomach? I said, who told you that? Well, nobody. I just feel like I have... And he was right. He was Goodness. right. They took him in and they found that he had... He was leaking from the surgery. So something with the enzymes in the pancreas were eating through the sutures. And mm. so his doctor had told me... He called me the night before Sean died and he said, we found this, this blood and we are going to go in the morning and put a, put a tube through his, his groin and snake it up and do kind of a quasi-cauterization to, to clamp this, this uh, flow of blood. And so I thought, okay, that's the plan. That's what they're going to do. And then around 1 o'clock in the morning, I get a call from the hospital saying, you need to come here now. And it was, it was the chaplain. And when the chaplain calls you, that's, that's just always bad. Mm -hmm. You know, when they call at one in the morning, it's just bad. Mm -hmm. And he told me not to drive. He told me to get somebody else to take me. Well, it's January uh, in Spokane. There is a snowstorm. I call my friend Kathleen, who has trouble getting her car to start. It was at least a half hour before she got to me. And... Um, so finally, she she collects me, and we are just hanging on. And the, it was a very long ride to the hospital. Normally, it would be 10 minutes, but because of the snowstorm, um, because of her rattly old car, it took us at least 20. And we get there, and my, uh, my, my priest, I had called him as well. He lived right above the hospital. So Bill was there before anybody else. And Bill got there, I think, just right after Sean had died. So what happened was he had this ruptured pseudoaneurysm. So he was bleeding internally. And the staff, I was told, did CPR on him for a half hour, which is a very long time. And they said they did that because he was young he was 48, and they were going to do everything they could to try to save him, but in the end, they couldn't. So so Bill was there. I was not there, um, which is something I wrestle with still. And, um, yeah, so by the time I got there, you know, the chaplain, the chaplain met us at the front doors. He brought Kathleen and I uh, up the elevators to the floor where Sean was and led us into the room. And by that time, it was all done. So the from what I understand, it was a, a mess. So all the blood had been cleaned up. And there's my husband looking really white, really pale. And um, he was just gone. And I, I gave him a kiss on the forehead. And yeah, and I just knew that he was not like he was not there anymore. You know, his body his body was there, but his spirit was gone and I could just feel that. Mm. And I stood over him 
And um, Bill, the priest, he took the Book of Common Prayer and he was reading from it. And I saw him sway just a little bit. And then he kind of slumped over. And I was feeling that the room was getting really hot. And I don't know if it was hot or if it was just my state of mind. But um, I wasn't sure exactly what was happening. And I asked Kathleen, who was there with us in the room, I said, what happened in there? And she said, well, Bill fainted. <laughs> and she said, and you were standing over Sean for about 45 minutes, which is really strange because my inclination was, I have to say goodbye. I have to kiss his, his dead forehead. Um, and then I'm just going to get out of here. And I guess I didn't do that. It's like time stood still. And um, I was there for a while. And then we all went into a waiting room, me, Bill, and Kathleen. And I was telling, I was telling Bill how, how bad I felt that I wasn't there when it happened. And, and Bill said, you know, you can hold on to that guilt if you need to, because you feel it connects you to Sean. But I would suggest that you let it go because you don't need it and you don't have to feel that. And, you know, those were really wise words and obviously ones that I still remember. Um, I guess he said what, what I needed to hear, and he was right. There's the, the guilt doesn't serve a purpose. It's just a natural part of what happens when you see your husband go and think, you know, why him? Why, why wasn't it me? Mm. And especially after he made it through the yeah. other things. Oh, my goodness. He did. He was four and a half months. So for four and a half months, he was waging this battle. You know, it's not like cancer where they give you kind of a prognosis and you go, oh, maybe we have six months or maybe we have a year or whatever. We just, we just didn't know. We thought he was going to rehab and come home. So I had, um, my dad was visiting from Ohio. I had called him in specifically for the purpose of helping me Sean. get Sean readjusted to home. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why, so he was there the night that, the morning that Sean died because we were going to bring him home. We were going to bring Sean home. Um, I'm really grateful that, that he was there, but um, it wasn't for the reason that I thought. So, so yeah, four and a half months of suffering and, you know, visiting and um, wondering when Sean's coming home and starting to get the house ready, like looking at it from a perspective of we don't have a shower on the first floor. We're going to mm -hmm. have to fix this and, and all of those things, you know, uh, putting putting handrails up, things like that. And um, just preparing him to come home. And I asked asked my friends about it afterwards. You know, we, we talked a lot about why why did Sean suffer for so long for seemingly no reason? And one of my friends said, well, I think, you know, you could look at it as he was giving you the opportunity to adjust to life without him, you yeah. know? So for four and a half months, I relied on my friends, my family when they, they flew in. Um, but really it was that community in Spokane that um, did everything for us. They, yeah, they did, they did the things that I didn't even know to ask for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
they were just those kind of people. Oh, that's um, beautiful. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they taught me a lot about what it means to to be a community. Yeah, and to care for each other. Yeah, <laughs> they were they were remarkable. They they held fundraisers for us because you know. American healthcare. <laughs> Anything can happen. You can yeah. get hit with the, the biggest bill of your life. And Sean was in ICU for so long. And at the time, there was a million dollar lifetime cap. And I was worried that we might exceed that. Yeah. And so, you know, they held, we had a, a, an auction and spaghetti feed. Uh, there were monthly chili feeds that happened at Chaps at a restaurant down the street from our house. People were amazingly generous and kind and uh, they did things for us like raked leaves in our yard and uh, cleaned out my hideous mess of a van and cleaned the house and brought lots of food. We had so much food that um, we had a small refrigerator and eventually the people in my church got together and they bought us a new refrigerator. Oh, I wow. mean, yeah. Yeah, it was it was pretty remarkable. I think that um, we all felt pretty powerless, yeah. and that's the one thing that we know to do to help each other is is to get together and and provide those comforts. Whether it's food, whether it's money, we got a couple of anonymous hundred dollar bills in Aww. in the mail in cards. You know, mm -hmm. just things like that. Um, I think people did what it was in their hearts to do to to help. And I look back on that as kind of a, uh, a small miracle in the midst of all of the, the chaos and the horribleness that was mm. going on. So, yeah. Yeah, and your friend's comment about the preparing you, I, I felt that, too, yesterday when we were having a conversation that that, that came to me for the children, that with their tender wee ages that that four and a half months also was a tapering away from daddy, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a bit of a transition. Yeah, I think it was. They did They did what they could at that time in their lives. They drew pictures, they visited, they would polish off whatever was on his hospital tray, and there was always lots because Sean wasn't eating very much. So they'd eat his applesauce, they'd drink his cranberry juice, his Aww. apple juice. You know, if there was Jello, boy, they were at that. They, they loved that. Um, Finley was on the hospital floor playing with his toy cars, and I'm thinking, oh, germs, oh my gosh. But, you know, the kid must have tremendous resistance to disease now because he's been on a lot of floors wow. playing with a lot of cars. Um, yeah, so they just, they handled it in their own way. Um, and uh, after, after Sean died and I had to figure out a way to tell them, I got advice from my brother-in-law who's a child psychiatrist and a, a priest friend and both of them said keep it simple don't use euphemisms you need to explain that he's Sean is dead daddy's daddy and he's not coming back and be really simple about the the cause of death and they can ask questions later you know so so I, I waited there was no reason we didn't get home from the hospital till probably about 5 30 in the morning and I thought there's no reason to wake up everybody in the household and say, hey, guess what? Right. Sean's dead. And that doesn't serve any purpose. Right. So 
We, we got home and went to bed. We slept for a few hours and then got up and thought, okay, now what? Now what do we do? And my friends knew what to do. I had no clue. I, I didn't know. It was the first time that anybody close to me had died. So I didn't know what the rituals were. And my friend said, well, typically what you do is you open up your house because people want to come over and they want to hug you and tell, you know, and bring mm -hmm. you food and flowers and all that. And so Cheryl Ann, a, a friend in Spokane and Kathleen, they both put out a message on Facebook um, and people came and we did a lot of talking and crying and laughing and eating lots and lots of eating and the coffee pot was always on. And, um, you know, in the middle of all of this, uh, it was probably mid-morning, the kids were playing at uh, the neighbors, and, and they came back for a little break or a snack or something, and and I told them. I told them what had happened to Daddy, that he'd been really sick, and we thought he was coming home. And, um, in fact, he, he wasn't. He had a surgery that he had lots of complications, and, you know, and Daddy's, Daddy's died, and he's not going to be with us anymore. And they, they didn't burst into tears. I think they were just trying to absorb it. Um, they asked to see a photo of him. So I got out the photo album, and I showed the kids a picture of Sean in the midst of Fairmont Hot Springs in British Columbia, which was one of our favorite places to go as a family. And the, the mist is, is rising around him, and he's in this lovely hot water. And the kids asked if if that was heaven, if Daddy was in heaven. And I said, well, I think it's a, a kind of heaven. And... Yeah, you can imagine Daddy there. and uh, So how old were the children at this time? Just remind us again. At this point, so Fiona's five. She turned six four days after Sean died. Okay. And Finley had just turned four. Okay. So during Sean's illness, while he was in the hospital, Finley turned four. Okay. Yeah. So their, their understanding was pretty limited, I think, at that point. Um, yeah. Can I ask a question yeah, about yeah. that and their grieving? Have you noticed developmentally, it's been how many years now? Uh, almost nine. So th yeah. through the last nine years, have you noticed that with their development, there's a need to process at different times or ask questions and have clarity? Yeah, absolutely there is. There's um, something will come up where they'll be sad and I'm not always sure what it is, and sometimes it is about Sean. It's about missing their dad, and um, it's it's a tough one because it often comes up at night when we're all tired and have kind of had enough after the day, so I try not to do too much processing at night. Um, I, I hug them and tell them it's going to be okay, and I love you, and Daddy loved you, and let's talk about this in the morning some more because yeah. nighttime is just a really hard time and I've always had that philosophy that, that grief really spills out at night and it's difficult to deal with everything is so much more difficult to deal with in the evening when you're tired than it is in the morning when things look fresh and you say okay let's tackle this now let's right. talk about that this sounds now very wise yes. yeah yeah but, and let them get that good rest <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. yeah we all need that but but as they go and um are, are growing up and now they're both teenagers so fiona is almost 15 and finley's 13 um it's those those milestones the the passage of time from middle school into college and um to see them playing soccer which was sean's game 
and be so proud of them and so sad that Sean's not here to see them do that. You know, mm -hmm. those are the things that, that trigger me and I think to some extent trigger them as well that, that daddy's not here. Um, I think because they were so young when he died, their, their memories have faded a lot, a lot. So it's the photos that will bring that back and it's me telling stories to them. Um, I'll often say something like, oh, your daddy was really good at that, um, or your dad would be so proud. And so that's something that I want to do more of is to, to bring out the photos and the video, especially in the times before Sean got sick, so they can see, they can see what kind of a person their daddy was. Because I can tell now they really, um, it's really hard for them to remember because mm -hmm. they were so young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they, you know, as far as trying to get them some kind of help to deal with their grief, there was a pilot program at school that Fiona could have done, and I had her signed up for it. It was a, a grief program for her age, and at first she said okay, and then she realized that she might miss some of her favorite classes, and she might be gone when they had morning tea, and uh, so she she just decided, no, she didn't want to do that. She didn't want to be pulled out of class. She didn't want to be made to feel different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, unfortunately. I think that's a common yeah, reaction at yeah, that age, yes. Yeah, so she, she did not want to do that, and I didn't push it on her. I would like her to do some more counseling, some more work with that. Um, just because it's not something that we do enough of in daily life. We're just busy. We've got uh, our routine, and they've got their activities and their friends, and so it's not like we're sitting down every night saying, okay, this is the time that we're going to talk about Sean. Yeah. We just don't. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it would be really helpful for both of them to be able to process with a, a, a neutral third party their thoughts and feelings yeah. about their dad. That safe space. Yeah. That, no, I think I think you have something there. Somebody was just telling me recently about how they feel, you know, that they don't maybe walk with their grief as much all of the time, but they do attend a regular grief group. And there's a beauty to that, you know, it, it when you know that you have that place to go to. You know, you can carry some things or... Write it down in a notebook or, you know, put it, file that in your brain to know that there is a space that's welcoming and that's helpful that I, you know, I, and I need something to talk about when I'm there, you know, and, and have it for there. I think it does support you as you walk in your day-to-day -day life more than as well. So. Yeah. But th that's what we're taught as, as therapists and counselors about the dynamics of grief with children is, you know, that, that to expect that throughout their developmental stages of life, grief may rise again because their intellectual capacity, their cognitive skills, are, you know, have developed as well. Mm -hmm. So they'll have different questions or more. I, I also can think that, that, you know, everybody's individual and with the children being so young, what, you know, when it is children that are very young, that might not be as prevalent. So it's just wonderful that you're you know, in tune with that, that you have it on your radar for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to be, I think for all of us, because we, you know, we left the United States, um, about seven months after Sean died and we, we traveled the world 
and uh, took a sabbatical in New Zealand for six months, uh, which turned into a year and a bit, and went back to Spokane for four months and then decided, no, actually, we've started something new in New Zealand. Well, I decided I'd started something new in New Zealand and wanted to stay there. <coughs> Excuse me. So in the course of in the course of moving around and traveling and everything, I think the grief is something, the grief work is something that's really been shelved. Um, you know, yeah. we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. If so. we could, if we could pause there for a second and back up, maybe actually let us take a little bit of a break now. And when we come back, I want to talk about this world trip, how Don Pickin did grief, right? Okay. Yeah. Because it's quite a story I feel. And I think our listeners might be interested in that. So we'll just pause for the moment and be back soon. Okay. Let's continue with your story. All right, so um, we had Sean's memorial service uh, about three weeks after he died, which I learned was, is highly unusual. Um, most times people have the service pretty close to the time of death. But in my case, our priest was going out of town on the first or second weekend, and my friend Kathleen, who I wanted to sing at the service, was going to be out of town for one or two weekends. So we just landed on, okay, three weeks out, um, which happened to be Valentine's Day. Aww. Yeah, and part of me felt bad, and the other part thought, well, my Valentine's Day is screwed. Why not screw everybody else's? <laughs> not really. It was a beautiful service. Um, but I... I was glad to be able to have that time. I mean, Sean was cremated. That's one thing that we had talked about together when we were riding around in the news van, because we worked together in TV news. Um, we had done a story about uh, father and daughter who were building their own casket. They were doing it mostly for, for Halloween. But we talked about this notion of, you know, building your own vessel for after you die and, and what would we want done and... We had both said that we would want to be cremated. We just didn't see any reason for all of the hoopla and the expense and, you know, why have this mahogany casket if it's just going into the ground? And so we were really practical that way. So that's one thing I felt like when it came time to make those decisions, I knew which decision to make. And so because he was cremated, there wasn't a time pressure, in my mind anyways, to rush to have the service. And so it meant that I could get things in place. I could go through lots of photos and have a video made. One of uh, Sean's friends did the video for us. That mm -hmm. was his profession. He did a beautiful job. Absolutely gorgeous. Can we, can we just like timeline it with you? So, so he from the hospital was taken to a funeral home a more, or how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. And then how long till the cremation and were you involved with that at all? Or Well, so they had asked me in the hospital what you would, what you want done. And I said cremation. And so I, they took him from there to the funeral home. I don't know exactly when the cremation happened. It mm -hmm. wasn't something that I asked, oh, I want to watch. Right, right. I did have an odd request afterwards from one of Sean's family members uh, saying that she was upset that she was not afforded, she and her, 
her daughters, I think, who were preteens at the time, were not afforded the opportunity to watch the cremation. And I thought, oh, it just hadn't occurred to me that that's something that anybody would want to do. Right. Um, but, you know, once somebody dies, it's all kinds of... not very common that you hear no, that, is it? No, no. After somebody dies, all kinds of weird stuff happens. It's mm-hmm. just part of the process. So, um, so no, I, I was pretty hands-off about that. And the family, there wasn't a time where his body was viewed or anything like that. No, no, there okay. wasn't. Yeah. There wasn't. And again, being a newcomer to the whole death scene, I had no clue about what protocols were. I didn't know who might want to see a body, who might not. Yeah. I just um I just did what I thought it was logical and practical to do. Yeah. And so once I signed that form saying cremation, it was just taken care of and I got Sean back in a box. How long? Um, I maybe, maybe a week or so. I was surprised how heavy the box was. Mm. You know, the ashes really seemed to weigh a lot. And so after that, it was just a matter of, okay, we're putting these, you know, where are we putting them? I'm putting them in the garden. Um, I'm taking some with me. I gave some to his family. So... From that standpoint, it was nice to be able to share, Sean. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't thought about a post-mortem, let's scrub him up so people can look at him. It's funny, it never entered my mind. Um, I guess because he had been through so much, and he had been so incredibly ill, that he was just a shadow of the Sean that I knew. You know, hospital Sean was different from the Sean that I had spent 10 years of married life with. Yeah. And so to preserve that and to have that image um, sticking in my mind and his family's mind and the children's minds for eternity, I suppose that's something subconsciously I, I wouldn't have wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have your memorial three weeks later and... You feel like having that space was a positive? That I think it was a positive. Yeah. yeah, I would encourage other people, if you don't feel like rushing to do a memorial, don't rush. Do it in your own time. I think the reason why we have memorials so soon is people just want to get it over with. Yep. They just want to get it done. And I got some advice from a fellow widow about the memorial, and she said, listen... It's really for other people. It's not so much for you as it is for other people because you're living in this every single day. You and the kids are going to go through Sean's, you know, grief over Sean's death every single day. This is a chance for people who are not so close, who are not in that inner circle to come and to express their sadness and and to be with you. It's not really for you. And that was really freeing for me. Because I didn't have to embrace the memorial as something that was that was really precious and important. I mean, we made it, we made it beautiful. It was at St. John's Cathedral. I was told later about 500 people packed that church. It was wow. astonishing. We had a lot of people show up for Sean. Um, his death really touched the community because they had rallied around us. They had done so much for us. Mm-hmm. So my job, I felt, at, at the memorial was just to make it through, just make it through that service. I went out <laughs> I went out to Nordstrom, and I bought some strappy black leather patent shoes that zipped up the back, and I thought, these seem almost not appropriate because they're so flashy and fun, and I'm going to wear these. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had to... A little black dress and I sat next to my friend Kathleen 
and we giggled through some of the funny stuff that happened at the memorial, and I didn't cry. I was, like, that was my big thing, was I did not want to be the blubbering widow in the front row, and I wasn't. I got up, and I spoke for probably about seven minutes, um, talked about Sean. I had a backup, though. I was really worried I was going to lose it, and so I asked a church friend, Kay, just to be my stand-in. She had the script. Uh, she had gone through kind of a rehearsal with me, and so I knew that if I broke down, that she was going to step in because I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to lose the words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was smart. Yeah. Mm. So, but I, but I did make it through. That was my mission. I thought I can cry in private at any time I want. I don't need to be grieving in public. And I think. You know, part of that's uh, a mistake as well because we need to be able to show that, and mm. and I know, but at the time I just wasn't prepared to do it. Can I just interject something that you're not making clear here? And I wonder if that had something to do with it. In your community, you're a TV personality at this time. Is that right? Yeah, I was. I had just come out of a 15-year television career. Eight of those years in Spokane, on air, anchoring a morning show, yeah. being the consumer investigative reporter. So, yeah, I, I was known in the community. So I wonder if that applied a little pressure to that point of view yeah. for you, you know, because it, it, it was, yeah, your life was not exactly always allowed to be personal. Yeah. And to, and many of those 500 people, obviously they were close friends, et cetera, but there was also people that had touched you or come up against you. I mean, I imagine in your role of always being quote unquote on, yeah, that could have played into your wanting to, to be yeah. as stoic as you possibly could. Yeah, but I love that. Right. I love your humanness about it as well, that you, you had a pl backup plan you didn't hold yourself, you know, you weren't, you weren't, um, punishing yourself by saying, oh, I may not drop a tear. You just yeah. had your backup plan. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And my friend Lucinda, who's, who's pretty wise and onto it and also has a, a television background. She said, listen, you need to give yourself permission to do on the day, whatever it is you're going to do. Yeah. If you're going to cry, that's okay. If you're not going to cry, that's also okay. Absolutely. And that was really powerful for me to hear that I was no less of a person. I was no less of a widow for not blubbering at my husband's memorial. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 But I was, you know, part of that outpouring of support, as you mentioned, was, was probably due to the fact that I was a, a public person out in the community. The news stations had run stories about Sean. Um, the newspaper had, had stories about Sean as well. So it was publicized. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's a whole probably, I mean, we could do a whole conversation, I'm sure, you know, if you really unpack that about that aspect of it too. Because you weren't just doing this privately, it sounds like. No, no, I wasn't. And I think because I had worked in that profession for so long, I was comfortable with that. And, yeah. and a lot of people wouldn't be. A lot of people would say, hey, everybody, back off. This is our time. But I felt like I needed the support. I wanted the support. I wanted people to know what was going on with us. Um, yeah. And it, it helped me to know that people were even in spirit, backing us and sending messages. I was really open on Facebook. I accepted a lot of friends I didn't know because I felt like it's my job as a reporter, as a wife, to be getting the story out there. And it did help, Sean. We got offers far and wide from people 
uh, many of whom we didn't know. So, so for me, the whole being public and the social media aspect of it was really helpful. Um, I know there's a lot of negatives to uh, being on Facebook and to, to sharing things, but that part of it was positive because we got a lot of support. Oh, so um, after the memorial, I uh, went back to work and I asked my boss for a leave of absence. I had asked for three months, and he said, if you're gone three months, then you might just be gone for good. And it wasn't a threat or anything. It was just a fact that you might decide that you don't want to come back here. And so I ended up taking a week to visit some friends. They invited me down to their home in St. Croix. And uh, the Caribbean was a wonderful place to grieve. I got to swing in a hammock and drink mojitos and run the island and I really had some time because I left my kids with the grandparents back in Ohio. I really had some time to think about what I wanted to do and just a few days after Sean died I talked to another widow, somebody I didn't know, someone who uh, I was connected to through a friend and she recommended a couple of books and one was Getting to the Other Side of Grief written by a local, by a Spokane author who had lost three generations of his family in a car crash and the other one was called One Year Off and it was a more hopeful book about what we could do afterwards. The author had taken his family uh, including his wife and three kids around the world for a year and I thought wow that is so inspiring and something that I have always wanted to do and so I had that book with me in the Caribbean and the author had had his dates of the trip and I penned my own imaginary dates below and started thinking about what this might look like and so uh, even though they say in the first year don't make any major changes I threw that rule book out the window and said you know what my life has already been profoundly changed, mm. and I didn't choose it. Mm. Um, as I thought, this is something I can actually choose. Yeah. I can choose to quit my job. I can choose to rent the house out. I can choose to pack up our lives into three big cases and three small ones and drag the kids around the world for a year, and that's my choice. And so it was really freeing after four and a half months of going from home to hospital, home to hospital, and then including work in that whole triangle, um, it was freeing to think, oh, I can actually leave, not just leave town, but I can leave the continent yep. and go elsewhere. And so we did. So I took the kids to uh, to Europe first. We started out in Paris. We met my dad and stepmom there. And Now, at the very beginning, <laughs> were you thinking a year? Um, at the very beginning, I was thinking a year. I had a conversation with my Aunt Leslie where she asked me, you know, why not wait a little bit till the kids are a little older, they'll remember it more, it might be easier to travel with them. And we talked about it for a while, and we both settled on the idea that if I waited, say, a couple of years, things would settle into a new normal, and it might seem irresponsible to take the kids out of school and to mm, do this big trip, true. whereas now... Everything's in flux, and we don't know what normal is. I've lost normal. That's gone. So why not just take this time where I'm feeling like, really, I have nothing to lose. I lost the one person, the one person in the entire world who was my children's father. That, mm -hmm. that is irreplaceable. 
I've lost that. So why not do something like travel the world? I mean, I had my, my one and only experience paragliding, jumping off the Oregon coast, was shortly after Sean died. And it was because of that feeling of what the hell. Yep. <laughs> He's gone. And I don't, um, yeah, I didn't see risk in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that, uh, you know, taking this world trip with the kids was, uh, was the right thing to do at the right time. So it was about seven months after Sean died that we left. And the same community that had helped us through the ordeal of Sean's illness and then his death, those same people helped me to pack up the house and to leave, which is astonishing. Mm. You know, they didn't hold me there. They didn't say, you owe us. You have to stay here for at least another decade or so because of all we've done for you. They said, we want you to be happy. And if this is going to make you happy, then go. Mm-hmm. You know, just remember us along the way. And of course, of course I have. And those are still, those are still some of my closest friends are, are in Spokane. Mm-hmm. And they always will be, I think. We have that connection. Um, but they, they helped me to go, and I think that's a really beautiful thing mm-hmm. when you can help someone out the door like that and not hold them to you because of your fears for them or yourself. So so we did. We We left, and we started in Paris, and we went throughout Europe. I found relatives I didn't know I had in Ireland. I revisited some of the places that Sean and I had been, like Giant's Causeway, and I thought, his molecules are here somewhere. Mm. You know, his essence is here somewhere. And I'm having these lovely thoughts about Sean, and I see my my then four-year-old, Finley, tromping off on these hexagonal rocks, getting closer and closer to the ocean. And I'm like, Finley! And he thinks it's a game, so he's leapfrogging Mm, forward. And yeah, that's kind of a thing that we played all throughout the trip, is Finley tries to scare the crap out of me, and I reel him back. Um, Yeah, so we, we made our way through Europe with a lot of help from friends and family. I stayed with uh, former exchange students that we'd had. Uh, it was wonderful for me to reconnect with them and to um, have them see the kids for either for the first time or to see them again after a while. And then from Europe, we flew to South Africa because I had a friend there. I had been an exchange student, and Heather graciously allowed us to stay with her in Cape Town and at her beach home in Comakee uh, on the Western Cape. And it was extraordinary. I was so, so thrilled to be able to be in that beautiful place that I had only read about and, you know, seen seen movies about. And I knew it was dangerous, but having a friend there made it seem possible. Mm-hmm. It made it seem doable. And once you're on the ground and you see people living what looks like a normal life, you think, oh, well, this is going to be okay. And I, and I got to think Sean was watching over us as well because I was a solo woman for most of that trip. I was traveling on my own with small kids and mm-hmm. we didn't have anything bad happen to us there. And so uh, certainly somebody was watching out for us, but we also took, took precautions. You know, my friend Heather said, don't, don't be driving at night, not just because of humans, but because there's baboons on the road yep. and you don't want them on your car and you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so we traveled around, we drove the garden route we went on a safari, um, 
it was wonderful to be able to show the kids those things. They, they got a little blasé because we, we had a safari the first night. We went um, to the Garden Root Game Lodge, and then the next morning we woke up early for another one and said, come on, kids, we're going to go see the animals again. And they're like, oh, but we already saw them. <laughs> it was still pretty special, though. We were bouncing around in Land Rovers, and we got stopped behind a rhinoceros who just opened up and unleashed this fire hose of urine that just smelled like ammonia. It was unbelievable. Finley was so excited. He's pointing and going, look, look, Mom, he's peeing. It's like, yes, I know, I can smell. (laughs) So, yeah, it was wonderful. South Africa for the animals is an incredible experience. Uh, We went on a whale-watching trip which I thought was, was just as special, if not more so, because the whales are, are just going anywhere they want, whereas at the, the garden, at the game lodge, um, it's on a reserve, and mm-hmm. so they're, they're fenced in. They're not going anywhere. Um, so the, I think it was the gray whales that we saw um, were pretty spectacular. They were breaching and diving and... Um, the captain, when he spotted the first whale, actually said, there she blows. And I was like, I thought that was only in Moby Dick. <laughs> so at this point, are you blogging yet? I was, I was doing some blogging, and I was mostly putting things on Facebook, lots of photos, lots of updates about not just the things that we were seeing and the people we were meeting, but also uh, what the kids were doing as well. Um, you know, their reactions, like we were in a pharmacy in South Africa and there would always be displays of condoms because the AIDS rate in South Mm -hmm. Africa was so, so high. And so Finley looked at this display with banana flavored condoms and asked about them, like, can we get some of those? (laughs) No, Finn, we don't need those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so things like that that I wanted to remember, their their funny reactions. I took them on a township tour in Nysna, and they got to play with kids whose main toy was a wheel on a wire. And they would take this through the, the dirt mounds and have great fun, and Finley wanted to take the wheel and wire back to Spokane, and I said, no, that's not mm. a good idea, that's theirs. And, uh, and they don't have a lot. And so what is your blog's address? Um, for the Adventure Mom. It is pickanddawn.blogspot.com. Or you can just, you can Google Adventure Mom. .blogspot.com. The title is Adventure Mom. Yeah. And I also have a website that's dawnpickin.com. You can find it through there. Dawnpickin.com. There will be a link there. Yeah. So from South Africa... There was eventually a time you did go back to Spokane. Yeah, but that was long after. So we went from South Africa to Australia. Okay. And we spent uh, two weeks in Sydney at the home of one of Sean's high school friends. So we connected with Bob, and Bob said, Hey, we're heading out on an adventure ourselves. Our house is going to be free for a couple weeks. Come and stay there. It was incredible. And because they were expat Americans, they had all of the American conveniences. They had the big refrigerator. They actually had a dryer that worked. Um, It was amazing to be in this home in the leafy suburbs north of Sydney. We would take the train into town, and it was just astonishingly beautiful. The blue waters of the Sydney Harbor were sparkling 
we took a ferry, we um, sprinkled some of Sean's ashes in the harbor. So that is a point. You did bring ashes along, didn't you? Yeah. And release them at different points along the trip. Yeah, yeah, I did. We had, Sean was in Ziploc bags all along the trip. Sean was in Ziploc bags along the way, and so in every country we visited, we would sprinkle some of the ashes. So, And I guess I was just going along the lines of, what what would I want to do? What would I want for me? Um, I don't know. We, Sean and I didn't get quite that deep about, you know, what would you want done with the ashes? And, and I didn't sprinkle all of them. I still have some, but I took mm -hmm. a portion. Mm -hmm. And it was just a ritual where we would scatter him. And you never knew what was going to happen. Sometimes it was just, oh, we're going to scatter them around this tree. Other times, like one time we were in Spain and we had walked to the end of some ruins and I was releasing the ashes, and they're kind of blowing back on me because the wind is going the other way. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, but he is everywhere. He is as far north as um, the top of Northern Ireland, all the way down to the bottom of South Africa. So, wow. Yeah, so Sean is everywhere. And I just see your smile when you say that, as far as the grief process and doing the traveling, that... That feels to me, when you say that, like that's a beautiful outcome of that, knowing that his essence and his molecules, as you say, <laughs> are all over in your most favorite parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty special. It was yeah. a nice ritual for yeah. us to do. It, it was a nice way, not just to have that one memorial at the church where you've got this big day and it feels like there's a lot of pressure. It was small memorials along the way for mm. Sean. It was making it up as we go and having these memories together of we are scattering daddy's ashes. And one time Fiona and I were scattering near the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Like Finley had had some kind of tantrum and I had a friend who was helping me along the way, helping me with the kids. And so she took Finley back to the apartment. Fiona and I went with our ashes to the Eiffel Tower and we scattered Sean's ashes along the base of a tree and Fiona was saying, maybe they'll grow new daddy heads. <laughs> yeah, so her little um, you know, six-year-old brain came up with, hey, maybe something new will come of this. Yeah. 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 Oh, sweet. Yeah. So he really is everywhere. And we um, eventually, uh, so we were three weeks in Australia. We went to Sydney and Melbourne, and then we flew to New Zealand, to the South Island, and Sean's ashes traveled with us there as well. And we traveled for a couple weeks on the South Island. We stayed with some travel hosts. I had joined a, an organization called Servas, which is designed to promote world peace through through travel and getting to know each other. So we would stay for two nights at a time with people who were strangers at the outset, friends when we left. Mm. It was really nice, especially as a solo parent, to have some adult company. Not to just to check into a hotel and be nameless, faceless, yeah. Yeah. but to really make a connection with people and to sit with them over tea and scones mm. and talk about their lives and what they've been through. Nice. Yeah, it was. It was a nice break for me after doing so much travel on my own with the kids because my friend Chelsea, she left us in Europe. She was with us for about, I think, six weeks. 
And then it was just me and the kids. And so we did have a lot of alone time together and I was going a bit crazy. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Especially with, um, with Finley, um, who was five at the time and a big handful. Mm-hmm. He had, uh, he had timeouts around the world. <laughs> yeah. So to have that grown up time and, and for me, I also need to run. Running is a big part of how I keep my sanity. It was, it has been, you know, since I've, gosh, since I can remember, probably since junior high, and uh, I've run through a lot of stuff, Mm. run through a lot of grief, and so that became more difficult when I was on my own, because now I've got two kids, and how do I run with them, and sometimes I take them to a park and run circles around them, um... So, so when we finally got to New Zealand and I was staying with these travel hosts, I could ask, do you mind if I go out in the morning and just run for an hour? And that was really wonderful. Oh, nice. That was yeah. medicine to finally be able to do that again was really helpful. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, so we, we wrapped up our, our South Island tour. We went to some really beautiful places. We went to Queenstown. And Milford Sound, where we saw the the waterfalls on our our fjord trip. And then we flew to the North Island. And I told the kids, okay, we're going to stay here for a while so you can finally have some toys. (laughs) So, because we'd been traveling light. And they didn't have a lot of stuff. So I had rented a small place for us for the first six weeks. And uh, our friend Jean visited. And she was... She was close to 80 at the time, and she made her first trip. She got her first passport. Wow. She came out on her own to visit us, and she brought toys. It was like Christmas. She came, I think, at the end of January, but it was definitely Christmas for the kids. And so she stayed with us. I had some more time where I could run. I had other friends who were visiting New Zealand, and I was able to go and walk the Tongariro Crossing with them, which is known as one of New Zealand's best one day walks and so yeah I finally had some some breathing space mm. when we got to the North Island and then I got the kids in school that was my plan we're gonna come to New Zealand the kids are going to be in school for six months because I had heard that the school system was good uh, they were welcoming of internationals so you pay your hefty fee and as a consequence you get to stay longer than the three months that your American passport would allow so I enrolled them as internationals for six months, and um, boy, once they went to school, it was a whole new world. It really, it really opened up a lot for me, a lot of time and space just to be. I, I didn't have a work visa, so I couldn't do that. So my job was just settling in and making community, mm. um, you know, creating a space where if something fell on me, if I was trapped under something heavy, like somebody might no, somebody might notice that mm-hmm. I wasn't around, you know, because mm-hmm. when we got here, I didn't know a soul. I did not know anybody in New Zealand. And I thought, if I get sick, what do I do? Where's my backup? And I didn't have that backup. And I was one day I, I developed a fever and um, really got scared about that possibility because to this point, I, I'd been really healthy on the trip. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I managed to join some groups, make some friends, and the kids were doing well in school. Um, I ended up meeting somebody, so I started dating. I started online dating about a year after Sean died, just because I wanted some adult company. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to go out to coffee or to dinner with somebody who didn't kick me under the table like like Finley would. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, so I, I met somebody here and that was part of my decision to to stay longer. 
Um, I thought, oh, six months is not enough. Once we got to Mount Monganui, which is in the Bay of Plenty, a really beautiful area, I just looked around and thought, how could I only stay six months? Like, how can we extend this? Because mm-hmm. I really need to see all the seasons and to, to get a feel for it. And so because of that international student visa, we were able to stay longer. Um, yeah, so we were in New Zealand for about a year, the first go-round, and then went back to Spokane to try to sell the house, to try to figure out which world do I want to be in? Is Spokane still mine? Can I exist here? And yes, while my friends were there, they all had their partners. They had their Mm -hmm. spouses. They had their lives. And that had continued. That hadn't changed. But I had because I was solo. And people treat you differently when Mm -hmm. you're solo. I I don't think any of us want to. It just happens. You know, we do things together in couples. And when you're not part of a couple anymore, you get left out of things. Again, not not necessarily intentionally, but that's just the way we operate. So it meant that the kids and I had spent a lot of time in the company of other women because that's what happens. When you're doing something, it's, oh, okay, the, the husbands drop off and, and you get the women. So there was nobody for Finley a lot of times to relate to, no, no guys around. And so when I met my chapter two, you could call him, mm-hmm. the second act, um, when I met Pete, I finally had that male presence that had been lacking for a while. Mm-hmm. So, which is not why, that's not why I dated. I dated for me. I dated because I wanted the adult company. But an outgrowth of that was, hey, I'm a package deal. And yeah. so if you're, if you're with me, then you're going to at some point encounter the kids. Yeah. 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 So, so I ended up spending those four months in Spokane didn't sell the house. The market in 2012 wasn't great. And so I just re-rented it and went back to New Zealand and decided this is where I want to be. Like I've started creating a community here. Um, I just wasn't sure what I was doing in Spokane. I didn't have a job. I was in my old house, but it felt different because Sean wasn't there. It just didn't feel as much like my place anymore without Sean. And I had started creating a new vision of what life could be in New Zealand and I decided, let's go with that. Let's mm. let's embrace this new climate where it doesn't snow, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, and and the beauty of a place where you can just be outdoors year round, and you know, living close to the beach. That's something I had never done. I'd always lived in cold climates, and the only beach that I had was a you know, part rocks, part sand in in Ohio on Lake Erie when I was growing up. But other than that, it was it was inland, it was cold, it was snowy. So coming to New Zealand was a totally different experience and one that I thought I could easily, easily live in for a long time. Mm. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the book that you've written and that you're in the process of working to get it published. And um, again, a little bit about your blog so people know how and and how people can stay in touch with you and obviously this saga continues you know this your story continues you're you're being open about it i'm assuming you're it's going to going to continue or get back into your blog mm-hmm. a bit more yeah, yeah yeah absolutely um and it's it's quite interesting and there's 
a whole other piece that we could be talking about now, but we're about out of time. So yeah, why don't you give us a, some insight into how people can connect? Well, they can connect through, they can friend me on Facebook, or they can connect through my email, which is my last name, first name at gmail.com, pickanddawn at gmail.com. Uh, they can check out the blog by Googling my name. That comes up. And, um, yeah, so the book is about an 80,000-word memoir called Love, Loss, and Facebook, My Year of Grief on the Run. And it intertwines the social media, the Facebook posts, with the narrative of the story of what happened to our family. It starts out from the time that Sean got sick and takes you through the, the illness and how people rallied around us and how Sean fought so hard and then takes you around the world to the different places that we visited and introduces people to these friends that we made along the way. And so that is in its, I don't know, probably 14th iteration. And um, yes, I'm in the process of finding a home for it with a publisher or doing that myself. And I just think, you know, the more that I, I touch the story and revisit the story and talk with other widows, the more I know that there's a need for it. I'm part of a community on Facebook of widows. And the more we tell our stories to each other, the more we realize that there is a common thread, that we are not freaks, we're not strange because we still are grieving nine years out in my case, or 15 years out, that it's always there, and it's really comforting to know. So I think part of the, the thing with me in the book is that it's not just a touchstone for Fiona and Finley, for my children. It is for anybody who has lost a loved one, who has wrestled with those issues of why them, and why am I in this position, and what am I going to do now? Yes. Yeah. I, th I really commend you for writing that. And I mean, that's really where Death Dialogues project started was knowing that the, the power there is and hearing other people's stories and not only the healing that can take place um, with not understanding that you're not alone, but also the knowledge that you can gain. Uh, as you said, you know, you had, had not traversed that terrain before and it was all new to you and if I listen to other people's stories and I hear um, how they walked through some of their trials or experiences it gives me just a bit more in my file box to to call on in the future so I really really commend you doing that and thank you for sharing your life like that um, I want to thank you right now for talking to, to the, our listeners today and myself, and uh, we were a little miracle that we got hooked up because uh, Dawn was down south further than I am in New Zealand, and we had a mutual friend and uh, that Dawn stayed in touch with on Facebook and was from the community that she lived in. I remembered seeing Dawn on TV as well, and she let us know that we were both here, and so since 2011, We've been in contact and visit, try to visit at least once a year or so. So um, I feel like I've been a little bit alongside this last bit of your journey. And uh, it's amazing to see how you're walking this walk. And again, I want to commend you and thank you for sharing yourself so completely 
with others and recognizing that community that's out there and can benefit from your words. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.